This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and as promised today, joined once again by Dave Prentice and Gav Buckland for the second part of our 1980s Royal Blue Podcast. But of course, for those of you who listened to the first 80s podcast last week, it's with a twist. This isn't about the great team that won trophies and titles and took Europe by storm for a period uh, between 84 and 87. On Friday, uh, we looked at the build-up in the decade and the less-than-encouraging start to the 80s, which ultimately did lead to something quite remarkable. And so today, we're going to pick up at the end of the 1987 season. Everton are champions again, but change is on the horizon. And Gav and Preno are going to talk you guys through um, a fascinating two-and-a-half-year period in the Blues history and, and, and answer the very sort of basic question of how well did this group of teams and this play and these players and different manager of course live up to the expectation set before them um chaps we'll just go straight in as where i said 87 we've regained the title howard's you know found another you know, another way to do it another another great team in that golden period but then it's almost as if the rug is pulled from underneath Everton Football Club because it was Howard's on his way out. It was an absolute bombshell. I remember it at the time very, very well. I was uh, I was on holiday in Menorca at the time in the uh, city of Kiyo de Della and um, <laughs> just picked, picked up in days before the internet and you know, sort of mobile phones and all that malarkey and uh, just picked up a newspaper and genuinely couldn't believe what I was reading on the back page. It must have been you know, like sort of a day a day old by then, and the, you know Howard had left. He'd uh, he'd gone to Athletic Bilbao. He'd not even gone to like a giant of European football. Uh, you know he had been linked with Barcelona uh, earlier in the summer, but he'd actually gone to Bilbao, who, with all due respect, you know weren't one of Europe's you know some great names. Uh, so it was it was an absolute you know bombshell uh, you know to be delivered. And the only saving grace really is that the identity of the successor was obvious. Um, I think Colin Harvey was so hugely respected and so hugely liked. And uh, there's also precedence as well because, you know, we'd seen what had happened at Liverpool when obviously their legendary manager, Bill Shankly, had retired in 1974 and was succeeded by his, you know, number two and became even more, more successful. So I think there was a genuine belief that, you know, Colin could just seamlessly carry on uh, what had gone before. And, you know, even his first game, he won another bit of silverware, the uh, Charity Shield at Wembley against Coventry. Uh, so whilst it was a shock and whilst it was very, very, you know, sort of upsetting, there was also a sense that we'll be all right, you know, because Colin's a very, very safe pair of hands. That's how I saw it anyway. I mean, how, how did you remember it, Gav? Uh, I'll I, I take you back to the week before the news um, came out. So I went to see... Uh... And when when they were still good, mind I went to U two at Wembley, and uh, <laughs> on, for my uh, for my reading uh, on the coach down there, uh, there was a, one of the national newspapers had a magazine of like eighty six, eighty seven season, yeah. and uh, they had a two page spread, big big page spread of Howard Kendall's kingdom, it was called, and it was oh, like yeah. how uh, how Everton had created the dynasty now to match Liverpool's, and how you know the infrastructure behind the scenes stuff like this and. This is a team that will dominate domestic football for uh, for the you know the years to come. That Everton uh, clubs are looking for that Liverpool DNA, you know, that lasted yeah. for fifteen years. 
and Evan had got that. And, and, and I remember reading it with, with Fries on the way down to Fries, you know, pardon the fun of what you said. And, uh, and then a week later, the news broke. And I was pretty sanguine about it, to be honest with you, because, the, 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 you know, in the mid-80s, the talk was, oh, it's all Colin and, you know, Howard's the front, but Colin does all the hard work and it's, he's made all the difference and stuff. So when Howard went, I was pretty cool about it. Um, in fact, the, the way those who say, well, actually, we could do even better now, Colin's in charge. Um, you know, which, which so I, I, I'm with, I know I was actually, I, I, was, I was shocked. Um, but where I was shocked, was I was, because the, the being obviously the dalliance with Barcelona the year before and, and stuff, I was shocked because it was Bilbao. If it had been Barcelona or Real Madrid, and Real Madrid had been after Howard a couple of years before, um, if it had been Real Madrid, Barcelona, somebody like that, or one of the Italian giants, yeah, no worries. But Bilbao, and it wasn't Bilbao in the in the early 80s when there were Spanish champions, I think. I don't know, hadn't he just missed out on getting relegated? Didn't that be relegated, had they? And he just missed out on getting relegated. And uh, that was the shock, going to Bilbao. Well, it was also the, the club that operated that Basque-only policy at the yeah. time as well. And, you know, we couldn't sign, you know, so players yeah. unless they were Basque. So it was it was a real challenge. Yeah. And it, it would clearly underline, you know, so how the European ban was already, you know, starting to uh, to bite hard. Um, you know, so Howard was getting a chief feat. He wanted to test his talents, you know, against the best in Europe. And, you know, ultimately, as we would find only a year or two down the line, so did many of the players at the football club as well. So that was probably the first real, you know, rumblings of the problems that the European ban was going to create for us. Yeah, I think Howard just wanted to test himself in Europe on the continent, didn't he? Yeah, about about uh, the Basque thing, I remember he said, uh, somebody said to him about, like, Problem sign a bass plays his hands around and he said, hey, Well, we can't bring anybody in from Everton unless Kevin Seedy wants to change nationality again. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Kevin, obviously, born in Wales, David yeah. Republic of Ireland. I think, I, I think we may talk about this at some point. I think the old European band was maybe a little bit overstated. I think I was just wanted to manage in Europe, didn't he? I mean, yeah, yeah. the Barcelona, Barcelona thing was within a year of high school and, yeah. and people. At that time, didn't think the high school was going to last five years. I mean, yeah. it was thought that it was just going to last a year. And I just think Howard wanted to manage in Europe, and that's where I just didn't get Bill Bow. I mean, I, I, you can see the attractions of the club, and he loved the people there and, and things like that. But yeah, yeah, um, a club. You said this on the pod, haven't we? When we spoke about support and stadium, that Bill Bow are in many respects a very similar club to Everton. So I, I, I get that in terms of that whole family field, that very localised, independent field. Mm. So I, I get it from that, um, why you'd want to go there. But from a football perspective, in terms of testing testing yourself against the best in Europe, it was it was a baffling decision for me. I, 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 think what, I think what was the massive, massive, you know, single most, you know, significant incident that summer, uh, apart from Howard going, was what happened across the park. I think yeah. Liverpool, Liverpool had basically seen what had happened to Everton. You know, they'd had their league title taken away from them. You know, so again, um, and so they took decisive action. That was the summer that Liverpool bought John Barnes and Peter Beardsley. Uh, they strengthened incredibly that summer. We yeah. bought Ian Ian Wilson and Alec Chamberlain. Yeah. Now, whether that I mean Ian Wilson was okay. He was a you know a steady left midfielder. But you know when you're talking about Kevin Sheedy, you know you're talking chalk and cheese. And Alec Chamberlain was just you know so a reserve goalkeeper. And it was almost like I, I suspect Colin wanted a. He knew the squad inside. That. 
out anyway. But I think he just wanted to, you know, sort of see what he could do, you know, sort yeah. of managing that squad rather than, you know, sort of strengthen. Uh, because, you know, as, as we later saw, I mean, Collins moves in the transfer market were hit and miss yeah. you know, at best. Uh, but, you know, Liverpool bringing in two absolute elite, you know, sort of forward players. And we just stuck with what we'd got. And, yeah. uh, and that, 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 that showed as the season progressed. He bought Ray Allen as well, didn't he, early on in the 87, 88 season. Yeah. I think Grant Collin, Phil, I mean, mm. you may want to talk about the challenges facing Colin. And I think I think the main challenge for me was it was a team that was, you know, it was a team that was reaching the end of its sort of four or five year cycle. I think yeah. Alex Ferguson and, and Harry Catterick before him used to say that teams operate in four year cycle most five years. You see Ferguson's great teams at United, but four or five years they last four top top uh, you know top whack. And I think it was a team in '87 that if you taste the revival back to '83, that was reaching the end of its natural natural life. And so there was a big rebuilding job, and it was quite awkward for Colin. It was a different job than say if you take over in '85. And Colin's in an awkward position in that he either brings a load of players in like Liverpool did. And then if it doesn't work, you get accused of, you know, you've broken up a championship winning tag team there, you know, yeah. needlessly. Or do you sit tight for 12 months and see what you've got and, and you know, and then take it forward? Colin chose, chose the latter, which was a, probably the right decision. But as Preno said, what he probably hadn't banked on is Liverpool going out buying two and three to absolute top of the range players, you know, to push ahead. And I think if he'd have known that, I think Colin now will probably replay that summer of '87 a little bit differently, um, but I could understand why. Why? I mean, Ian Wilson was just bang average, wasn't he? Oh, um, to be fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 you know, look, Colin's place as 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 a, as a club legend was was well cemented by that point because of what he'd done as a player, and then obviously mm. his house number two. But was it almost the impossible job stepping in to the shoes of, of, of Howard's, given not only because of what Howard had, had achieved at the football club, but he was he was the club in many respects, wasn't he? And he's a huge character and, and everything that goes with it. Yeah, they were, they were very, very different. And I always remember an interview that, you know, sort of Colin gave at the time on BBC. I think it was a football focus. And it was almost like he was reluctantly accepting the role. He did it mm. because the club wanted him to. And I remember at the time BBC saying, well, we remember Bob Paisley, you know, sort of expressing similar reluctance when he, you know, succeeded Bill Shankly. And look how that ended, which is why, you know, we, we still were quite confident. But it was, it was only, he was on holiday, I think, at the time in a caravan in North Wales when he, uh, when he got the call from Phil Carter. And um, he just said, well, yeah, you know, I'll give it a go. And uh, his talents were much better on the training ground, coaching. I mean, obviously, I was working at the time, then I just started on the Daily Post. And, um, you know, whereas Howard was a really slick and consummate media operator, you know, he had the mm. press eating out of the palm of his hand. Colin found it a chore, really. He didn't enjoy dealing with the press. And he yeah. did it because he, he had to. And I know a lot of the press conferences were quite, uh, not spiky, but, you know, certainly lacked a little bit of the um, easygoing affability that they had, you know, so under Howard. And it was just a part of the uh, the job that he didn't really enjoy. I think he'd much rather have been in the background on the training pitch working with players, which is eventually, you know, so when it came full circle and how it came back, which is what he went back to, and certainly what he was much happiest doing. Yeah, um, I think... I think. Sorry, Phil. I was just going to say, Gav, uh, can I just, uh, just want to ask you, you know, if, if this was... If you, if you brought this situation 
to the modern day. And so we 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 ended the season and um, Carlo Ancelotti. We've won the league under Carlo, and he, he, he gets an offer from Spain. Surely, you know, there would be a a the fans would be up in arms at the prospect of losing the manager, and the board would be almost saying, "Hands off, no chance." Yeah. They would have tied they would have tied him down onto a long term contract. What was the situation? Were long term contracts for managers a thing at that point? Yeah, what I think was, I, was, I think Howard was on a uh, I would I would I had two years of his contract to run, but I think he had a break. He had a release clause in his contract, so I think Evan right. ended up getting compensation. So that was the contractual perspective. I think going back to the question to Prano, I think Colin had two challenges: was a replacing Howard and also replacing Colin Harvey, the coach. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think I think when you talk about coaches not making great managers, I think that's fifty percent of the thing. I think what 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 you've then got to find out is get fired as a coach who was as good enough as you, who could have the same sort of relationship with the manager as what you had with the previous coach. And I think that was two challenges that Colin faced. And you can see what he tried to do, he tried to keep it all in house. But the difference with Liverpool was is when Shankly went when Paisley came in, they still had real depth and coaching talent. You know, they had Bob Paisley, uh, you know, Ronnie Moran, Joe Fagan, people like that, who had all been with the club in the successful times and all did a loads of work around the club. We went Everton, it was all Colin, it was all Colin and Howard. So as soon as Howard yeah. went, he lost fifty percent of it. You, you did yes. beyond then, you had people who were there, but you didn't have real, real um, effective, experienced, capable people like he did across the park when they were doing their doing their sort of dynasty. And uh, I think that was that that was also Colin's problem. It was the people mm. behind him and the passing order of the club, maybe but maybe not as good as what they needed to be for us to create a proper dynasty. So it was uh, yeah, 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 and as well he had the team to, to sort of replace um as well. He had four or five uh, positions that really needed looking at. So he had, he had, he had a lot of lot on his insight, Colin, to be fair. It is, and looking back, it's easy to see that now. But at the time, you do become complacent, not yeah. just as a football club, but as a football fan. You know, you just expect uh, it to continue. You know, no one saw it coming when it actually arrived in 1984. And equally, no one saw it going. We'd had three seasons where we'd absolutely obliterated everybody and we're just like steamrolling, you know, so, you know, and in Europe. And in 86, I mean, so unfortunate in that season. You know, finishing second in both competitions, but played some great football all the way through. But so, but then to bounce back and win the league in 1987. So no one really saw it coming. You know, we didn't realise that Peter Reid was nearing the end of his, you know, sort of usefulness. We didn't realise that, you know, Adrian Heath again was like not the player he had been since the injury. Um, we didn't realise that Gary Stevens and Trevor Stephen were going to up sticks and leave the football club only 12 months later. Uh, it was there were like lots of holes starting to develop, which you can spot in hindsight, but at the time you never really appreciated. Yeah, mm. as you say, sorry, just to just to say, first Collins first game with the trophy at Wembley, and yeah. you know, so it's 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 you think know it's the good times will carry on here, but looking back now, there was a there was there was a big it was a big job for Collins. And I mean, just just from my own personal perspective, but I've only been in Colin and Howard's company together uh, a couple of times at once for like a reasonable period of time. And when you saw them together, and probably you know a lot more than me on this, you could tell who's the natural manager and oh, who yeah, is. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, I always no. remember that there, those preseason tours uh, when, when I first started um, in the job, which was the second coming of Howard, you know, so in the uh, the early 90s. And it was quite funny because, you know, my first preseason was in a little town called Balstal in Switzerland. And um, we used to stay in the same hotel as the team. And Howard and Colin, you know, they'd be having, you know, sort of dinner. And they'd always invite the press over to join them. Or Colin would always invite the press over. And obviously, you're on pre-season tour, so you want to be spending time with the manager. So, you, you know, you'd, you'd go straight over. And then Colin would very quietly slip away. And he'd go up to his room and just leave yeah. us there then with Howard holding court and, you know, a couple of bottles of wine. Yeah. And it, it was good, but Howard was comfortable in that. Howard enjoyed doing that. And Colin didn't. You know, he, he definitely was a side of the job that he wasn't yeah. particularly... That was that was pretty much my my ex, my limited experience. I also think with the players as a group, not not as to me, Colin uh, Howard was very much the centre towards me, and I think Colin didn't he didn't have that same relationship with the, with the group. And I think I think one of the accusations around one, why it went a little bit wrong after eighty seven was that clicks started appearing within the group of players, and I think yeah. one of that was because Colin. Didn't have that sort of overarching sort of um, you know uh, you know looking over the group as as one that the Howard had you know and I think um, it, it was a really difficult job that Colin had and we should always uh, you know always remember that and we say about why did things go wrong Howard would have had a big job in '87 to be honest with you yeah. yeah and he was yeah. he was unfortunate in that first season I mean he came close in a couple of competitions. I mean, obviously, we had the, the League Cup, and the League Cup was, you know, sort of a decent competition at the time, and uh, got through to the semi-finals. And I think Trevor Stevens got this incredible record from the penalty spot. I think uh, it's only recently that Bainsey maybe topped his record, and uh, I think he only missed three in his entire, you know, sort of Everton career. But one was like five minutes from the end of a League Cup semi-final against Arsenal, yeah. we were a goal down at Goodison in the first leg, and he skied it over the Gladys Street crossbar. Uh, so you know, a goal down, go down to you know Highbury. And uh, I think even then we equalised, but you know we ended up getting knocked out quite yeah. you know, sort of grimly. We had that World Club Championship, the bizarre thing they played in Dubai, where we played Glasgow Rangers, who uh, were managed by Graham Souness at the time. And again, two 0 up and coasting, and then uh, I think got pegged back to two two, and then uh, lost a penalty shootout that went on forever. I think it finished about eight seven in the end uh, to Rangers. Yeah. Exactly that front of eight seven. Great night. <laughs> And Snods missed. Snods, Snods, who very rarely took penalties, but he, he missed the, the decisive yeah. one. So, yeah, there was name. And then, yeah, the FA, remember the FA Cup gap? We had Sheffield Wednesday. We played them five times. I think in a four, of them, four of them were draws, one after yeah. the other. And that, that was a really aggressive, physical Sheffield Wednesday team. They were real tough customers. Anyway, drew four times and beat them 5-0 five, five up at half-time in the yeah. fourth replay. It was absolutely incredible. Then played Middlesbrough, drew three times in that one. Oh, sorry, drew yeah. twice and then beat them in the, uh, the, the third game. Then after all that, you draw bloody Liverpool <laughs> in the fifth yeah. round. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Ray Houghton, I think he scored the goal in that one. So that was like, you know, sort of close but no cigar. So the first season was all a little bit, you know, crack starting to appear, you know, came close in a couple of competitions. And then the beginning of the second season, I think Colin probably did what he should have done at the start of the uh, the first season and went on a bit of a mad spending spree. Well, yeah. just, I just want to stay with um, the, the the craziness of, of Colin's first season because, yeah. as you mentioned, you've mentioned the uh, Dubai Champions Cup Prenner, which took place yeah. in December, and we played Glasgow Rangers. But it wasn't the only... A slightly bizarrely named unusual tournament that the Blues took, took part in. Uh, but 
Bayern Munich in the mercantile credit. Yeah, that was a great night, Brad. Don't, don't knock that. <laughs> um, so the, there was there was that one, and there was it was a Simod Cup as well. Yeah. Simod I mean, Cup, yeah. I don't yeah. forget the I mean, mercantile credit centenary festival at Wembley. Yeah, <laughs> against Manchester United. I mean, anybody was anybody a, looking through, looking through the list of this season on uh, on Steve Johnson's excellent website, uh, Everton results? Yeah. It's absolutely insane. I yeah. mean, what was it like? It was brilliant. It, I mean, that, that, that mercantile credit game against Bayern Munich at Goodison. I remember it very well because I wasn't working that night for some strange... Or if I was working, then I got my stuff filed quickly and I went down into one of the bars downstairs where, like, people... Myself and Phil McNulty, who worked with us, ended up being invited down. And uh, Jack Taylor was in there, bizarrely, who was the, the World Cup final referee from 1974. And I just remember getting involved in this real massive drinking session with all kinds of people. <laughs> and uh, I, my, my girlfriend at the time, you know, so ringing up, you know, so Phil McNulty at two o'clock in the morning to find out where I was. <laughs> it was, it was just absolutely bizarre. So, I mean, that, that was a great night. And Everton won 3 1 as well, um, you know, so which actually replicated, you know, the, the famous night against Bayern Munich. That was great. But the, this, the Simard Cup was, no one was interested in it, you know, even though we got to the final yeah. the following year. It was just an irrelevance. I think the gates were like about five and six thousand that year. But that Mercantile Credit Festival was bizarre. I think there were 45 minute games. And, um, they were, were they? Uh, we, yeah, we yeah, it was. It was wasn't it the teams that in the highest scorers or something, wasn't it? Was it 20 minutes each way? And there there think... was a mad, mad criteria for qualification. It was yeah. to commemorate the Football League centenary. And it was spread over an entire weekend down at Wembley. And uh, Tranmere Road was qualified because uh, they'd been on this like run of form of like three or four months scoring goals galore um, and qualified. And they, they were the stars of the show, actually, because they beat Newcastle. They had Paul Gascoigne playing for them at the time and Wimbledon, who were the FA Cup, soon to be FA Cup winners. And so, you know, they, they were like the stars of the show. Everton, it was just like, I think the only significance for us is that Kevin Ratcliffe led an Everton team at Wembley for something like about the 12th time at Wembley. It was yeah. absolutely incredible. Um, but it was, it was just an absolute irrelevance of a competition. And you can imagine like fans from like about 12 different clubs all dotted around the stadium. It was very, very strange. And you know, that one, nobody was interested in at all. Can I just make a, an observation there about that? I recollections. I'm glad to see he uh, celebrated the Bayern Munich uh, win in 1987, like the celebrated the Bayern Munich win in 1985, you know. There's another observation about 87. There's two, two observations really about that season. And, and is first of all, is we only conceded 27 goals. Right. In forty games, mm-hmm. that was that was key. That was when Nev, Nev Waggy and uh, Kevin Ratcliffe were at their peak, and mm-hmm. we finished fourth that season. And I'm going to bring back to Plano's one of one of his favourite topics at the moment, Gary Lineker. Right. Is that okay to say, "Oh, yeah, we tried to sell Lineker in '86 because everyone decided in '86, '87"? Yeah. Is where we miss Lineker? If they've been in '86, '87, '87, '88, they've been there then and the following year. We went from scoring 80 odd goals a season to only scoring 50. Yeah. 87, 88. We'd be lost that. If Lineker had been there, we probably would have scored 20, 30 goals more and we would have been challenging Liverpool for the title. We only conceded 27. Yeah. And we'd be forget, we forget that. And um, it's, it, it's, we saw it a very short term view of Lineker. That's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is you lose to Arsenal, Arsenal game the League Cup is. Colin was managing in a different environment in English football, I think, in the end of the 80s compared to Howard in the mid-80s. In, that, in the mid-80s, 
you knew if you beat Liverpool, you'd be champions. Yeah. When you get to the end of the decade, all them big clubs that had sort of lost their way over the previous 15 years had all started to, to come back again um, because they changed the rules around gate money, hadn't they, in the early 80s to give all the, the money to home teams and their wealth went up. So all of a sudden, you've got Ferguson starting the Man United, George Graham starting at uh, Arsenal, who was become a big force at the end of the decade. And then, you'd like, later on, 89-90, had Leeds start to come back into, into things. Uh, and Tottenham were decent. So, Colin, in terms of his competition, he faced far more competition than what Howard did yeah. at domestic level, um, mm. which, which we should also remember looking at this, this period. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. So, uh, as you've both mentioned, uh, a fourth place finish in Collins' first season, which, of course, coming from champions, you know, it's it's a drop off that nobody would want. But equally, it wouldn't. Was it enough to cause uh, any alarm, or was it enough for people to foresee a further drop off in the second season, or was there enough optimism that actually fourth kept us in in touch with 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 the top teams in the division rather than what was to come no but back then fourth place was a major major disappointment i know now you think about it as being mm. you know so you know a decent finish but back then it was it was definitely cause for concern and i was sure i wanted to mention actually we finished 20 points behind liverpool last season i mean it wasn't just like a, a narrow fourth place it was massively you know in their slipstream and also that frustration of not being around in europe who won the european cup that year you remember 87 88 was psv won it no, psv eindhoven yeah beat ben yeah. in the european cup final on penalties so, you know, again, people laugh about, uh, you know, so ah, you wouldn't have won you know, the European Cup in 86, Manchester, Bucharest won us. It was a period when Emerson were denied European competition that could have, you know, sort of done so much in terms of bringing players in. But certainly, you know, there, there were signs that the club was changing quite significantly. I mean, I think Derek Mountfield went that season. Peter Reid had gone or was going. Uh, Gary Stevens obviously went up to Rangers. Adrian Heath was sold to Espanyol. Colin was starting to make changes. And at the start of the following season, you know, because we'd finished fourth and clearly changes were needed. And you mentioned Gary Lineker, Gav. You know, clearly we needed a striker. Yeah. Um, he did go overboard the following summer and spent massively. And, yes. uh, and obviously, you know, one of the players that he brought in was a £2.2 million striker who at the time, you know, was sort of, Arsenal wanted him. We had a real bitter battle with Arsenal to sign Tony Cotty and were ultimately successful. Gav, what was, what was uh, Tony is obviously, a, a, you know, he's a big part of, of, of the build up to yeah. that season. Of course, as Preno says, you know, at the time, a British record um, fee for a player. Um, what was what was the feeling when Tony Cotty came into the football club? Um, I think it was feeling an excitement because I think any time you buy a player for big money, especially if you beat an Arsenal to it, you, you're thinking, you know, this is this could be like buying Lineker, you know, in 1885. Tony, Tony's record was was fantastic for the West Ham team. That had, apart from maybe one or two seasons, it's really been a table at best. So, yeah, there was a, there was definite um, feeling of uh, excitement. I think there was... Buying Pat Nevin as well, who was, who was like defines the word mercurial, doesn't he? Pat yeah, Nevin yeah. as a winger. Um, so it was, as part of a batting sign, and you're thinking, you know, this this can take us forwards. Um, but yeah, Cotty at 2.2 million, you're thinking, yeah, there was uh, there was excitement. The other thing with Cotty, it seemed a classic, and now probably a mistaken view, 
you've got Graham Sharp as a tall striker, and you see how well Sharp is linked up with Inchi, uh, Asian East, and you've got Tony Cossey, and you think, oh, there's a natural striking partnership, you know. Yeah. Sharp, target man, mm. Tony Cossey, feed off him, you know. And it didn't, for lots of reasons, it didn't work out like that because Tony Cossey, with all due respect, wasn't half because of players where Asian East was, and he was mm. a different type of player as well. Yeah, he was just a penalty box poacher, wasn't he? Pure and simple. Yeah. You know, whereas Inchi did so much work all around the pitch. So, 2.2 million preno for Tony yeah. Cotty. There was obviously a um, British record fee at the time, obviously, so therefore, obviously, a club record fee. What had been the previous club record fee for a transfer? Do you, can you remember? Oh, God, was it, was it Adrian Heath? 800 grand? Right. Um, okay, so it was, it was a significant leap, whatever it was. Oh, absolutely smashed it, yeah. It was, there was, there was huge excitement about that signing. But again, you know, hindsight being a wonderful thing because, you know, it wasn't just Tony Cossey or Pat Nevin. We also bought Stuart McCall uh, from mm-hmm. Bradford and uh, Neil McDonald from Newcastle. And I think all four of them played against Newcastle on the opening day. Uh, Newcastle had also bought three or four players, I think Dave Besson's and Andy Thorne. There was like, you know, so real excitement about that fixture. And um, Everson were absolutely magnificent. Uh, battered them largely because Newcastle were a poor side. Um, but yeah. Tony Cotty scored after 30 seconds, went on to score a hat-trick. Remember at the time him saying to the press, he goes, you know, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to try and maintain my goal-scoring record. I've scored you know, 20 league goals this season. After that game, coming out and saying, if I'm going to get service like that all season, I'm going to up that, you know, up the ante. I think I can score 30 league goals. And, mm. uh, you know, we, we genuinely believed him. Uh, but what we didn't appreciate at the time is the signing of so many new players created divisions in the squad. And I mean, we only learned about it subsequently, but they became like the old guards, you know, so the, the people that had won the league in 87, you know, your Kevin Ratcliffe, your Peter Reeds, you know, so the, you know, Ian Snowden's the people that have been at the club for a while. And they saw, you know, these newcomers in some respects didn't think the players that were coming in were as good as the ones that they were replacing. And divisions started to appear in the squad as a result. We never knew about it at the time. And they've started that season great. I mean, one away, so I beat Newcastle 4-0, but then went to Coventry the following weekend mm. and won 1-0. Now, I've got to mention, that is still the most, you know, the best individual goalkeeping performance I have ever seen. Neville was absolutely immense that day. Uh, he saved a penalty from Brian, Brian Kilcline. It was about the third or fourth best save he made that day. It's on YouTube. One from Gary Bannister, one from what, what, Wally Downs. Was our Greg Downs, the other full Greg Downs, yeah. 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 It, it was just an absolutely incredible... Neville was at his absolute peak then. And uh, that yeah. was when Manchester, Manchester United were trying to like squirrel him away. And uh, I think Colin got him under a ridiculous contract at the time. I think it's about a six or seven year contract, which was like largely unheard of. For a, for you know an outfield player back then, even a goalkeeper. Um, so you know he was at his absolute imperious best. Uh, but you know early on in that season, we thought, well, this could be it. You know, so Collins, you know, pulled a masterstroke here. He's brought in these new players. We started the season well, but it all fell apart very, very quickly. I think Tony Cotty got dropped about two months in. Uh, and it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a very, very you know sort of from real roller coaster of a season from absolutely sublime highs to you know sort of fairly significant lows very quickly. I think I think he, I think what it was was that there was the the, clique, the cliques and, and I think I think Phil it was just that classic thing of the players that we brought in were nowhere as good as the players that we, we let go. I mean, for example, Pat Nevin, great bloke and fantastic to talk to, isn't he, and all that. But mm. and I know Trevor was Trevor Steve was still there in 87, 88, 89, Sorry, but Pat Pat was nowhere as good as Trevor. Yeah. He might he might he might have had. 
he might be more talented in some respects as a dribble and stuff, but in terms of, you know, Pat, Pat could be an 8 on 10 or a 4 on 10, but Trevor was always a 7 or 8 on 10, you know. Yeah. And that's what you need in championship winning teams. And um, you got the impression pretty quickly that these players aren't as good as what we what we brought in. That's what they were in the uh, in, in in the mid eighties. And and there was one result that season, Prano, that you just thought it's gone here. It's when we went to Bradford. We were thinking we're in the third division, of the League Cup, I think, yeah. in December, and we got beat three oh, one. Yeah. And it was a proper proper three one. And yeah. you're thinking that's not a result I've been used to it ever in the last five years, you know. And you could you could see then. And that, that it was maybe a not falling apart, but the cracks quite early were, were, were apparent. And I think also as well, and this again shows the character of the team, is that throughout Collins' reign, the whole form was really good, but the away form was dreadful. Yeah. You know, the away form was really... Goldison was yeah. still a fortress, but I think the, the away form, we really struggled to win away from home. And maybe you're thinking now whether the players were... At that little extra bite that he has in the mid 80s, but at the 80s, 89 before Christmas, you, you're thinking, yeah, it's it's not right here, and maybe uh, maybe sort of it, it's it's a bigger job for Colin than what um, you know what he's capable of doing. Well, in a, in a sort of eerie way that the decade finished in a similar fashion as to how you both spoke about the start of the decade, um, the first pod, and how the importance of cups to propping up seasons. Um, Colin took us all the way to the final, um, you know, beat Norwich in the semi-final, Pat Nevin scoring at Villa Park. But of course, the underlying issue was that we would finish eighth. Now, you said just before that fourth place finish nowadays is considered fabulous in many respects. Yeah. But then, but a fourth place finish in 80, 87, 88 was, was real alarm bells. So what was, what was an eighth place finish? Well, again, you know, so it, it was alarming. But I think in that first pod we mentioned about how managerial, you know, futures, you know, hinged on cup competitions, and you could probably argue that, you know, so Collins also, you know, mm. went sour as a result of cup competitions. I mean, we got to the final of the Simod Cup that year, and the Simod Cup yes. was just absolutely the, the most biggest non-entity you've ever heard of. Nobody was in the tiniest bit interested. Um, you know, we got beat four three. I think it was by Forest, and genuinely, it was like it was a it was a friendly. It was it was like a day out. Nobody was really that bothered. Um, the cup final was a strange one that year because obviously it was the year of Hillsborough, um, and you know that obviously happened the day that you know so Pat was scoring the winning goal mm-hmm. against Norwich, and the, the atmosphere that day was just utterly and totally muted as a result mm-hmm. of the news that we were hearing elsewhere. And you know that there was that was the cup final that Everton could never win that year. Uh, because it just would have felt wrong. It would have felt, you know, it was, we can't really put it into words because I was there as a supporter that day. Glorious hot day. I'd gone down with my mates who were like Liverpool fans. Uh, but it was it was a very, very strange atmosphere. And whilst we celebrated, you know, the, the last minute equaliser, you know, absolutely wildly, you know, fans invading the pitch because they'd actually taken the fences down uh, for the first time in a cup final as a result of what happened to Hillsborough. Uh, and celebrated again, you know, so when Stuart McCauley equalised, you know, in extra mm. time, there was always a feeling that, you know, it was Liverpool's, you know, it would have felt wrong winning it that year because of what had happened. And uh, it was just somehow felt right that, you know, so Liverpool should have won the FA Cup that year. So even if Colin had won it, 
I think it yeah. would have jarred. It would have felt a little bit odd. I don't know. That's how I felt about it. What did you think at the time, Gav? I, 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 the whole period from the 15th of April was surreal, wasn't it? You know, um, I get the impression that, you know, understandably, even having the players with us affected them. Um, yeah. I mean, the other thing as well, I think 88-89, if you have a look, Phil, I think we won mm. our last three games. I think we were 12th or something. And I bet right, we yeah. finishing yeah. it. We won the last three games, I think. Um, I think we have to be. I always remember going in the main stand. Dave Wilson scored the world against Derby the last game of the season. It was yeah. only, the only league goal for Everton. And uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, you always got the impression that uh, the 89 fan when we were on the outside, we were on the outside looking in a little yeah. bit. Um, yeah, especially it was BBC and BBC always had this close relationship with Liverpool. And it was understandable in that. I wouldn't say glassy poopers, but you always got the impression that that was maybe what it would. Be, be perceived as as it hey, was such, such, a, such a close relationship they even got yeah. his name wrong do you remember Stuart McCall equalised and was it John yeah. Motson screams Steve McCall yeah <laughs> he, he played for Ipswich he, he played for Ipswich yeah 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 um, yeah so that, that's uh, that, so that says it all really I mean the final mm. itself I mean we, we I mean Liverpool were far I mean, were far superior to us by that stage I think um, and in the final we hardly I mean, we'd be hardly friends until the last 20 minutes, I think. I think uh, we ended up throwing men forwards and we got a goal in, we got a goal in injury time, didn't we? And then in the second period, we we equalised. But Rush, I mean, if you have a look, the, the, the two, the def- as I said, how good defence we were in 87, 88. The two goals Rush scored in, in extra time. Yeah. Probably... Sense of, sense of our defence, Rackford from Watson, fantastic defenders, but both occasions at all, maybe not the best defending. Um, but you, you did, I'd, I'd even felt 89, it was it was gone. And, and Trevor, Trevor, Trevor went, didn't he, the summer of 89? And that yeah. sort of symbolised the sort of, I mean, I think he went, he went to Rangers. Because the other thing I would say is people say, oh, we wouldn't have lost Gary Stevens or Trevor Stevens to Rangers because of high, because of high school thing. Gary Stevens didn't go by Europe. He, he went because him and Colin, I think he, Gary said this, he, he didn't have that crazy relationship. And I think he fell out, falling out with Colin. Europe yeah. didn't come into it. And I think Trevor, Trevor, well, as you well know, know Trevor managed his career really well. He's a really bright fella, isn't he, Trevor? Yeah. He really knew his own worth. And I think regardless of even how would have been there, Trevor probably would have moved in the late 80s anyway for a new challenge to, to get a little bit more for himself. He was that type of uh, personality and good, good luck to him. Um, because I think throughout his career, he, he always won the league title, didn't he? He went to the Angels, won it every year. He went to Marseille, didn't he? For, for the year. He won the French title. So yeah. he, he managed his club there really well. And Trevor would have gone anyway, regardless of whether it been Europe or not. And Trevor, and he, he going was sort of symbolised that that's the end of an era. I mean, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, Kevin, Kevin Ratcliffe, I think, has said since that he should have gone in the mid the end of the 80s as well, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, I think he does. He, he's been, you're talking about players who've been there for the club for 10 years. Yeah. And I think they were just getting a bit stale. 
you know. You were, and the supporters were beginning to turn a little bit as well. If you remember that that cup final, a fan ran onto the pitch uh, before the end yeah. of the game. We started having a go at Trevor Stephen. And yeah. you know, Trevor was like a magnificent footballer, but it was because the rumours had been, you know, flying round about him leaving the football club. And I don't know what was said to him, but you can imagine it was, you know, something along the lines of him, you know, wanting to leave the club, you know, trying yeah. to put more of a shift in. But it was the, the fans were starting to to turn on the players a little bit as well. And it was, it was becoming quite a rancorous time, unfortunately. Yeah. And as you say, Colin, for the centres of coaching stuff, that that's where the media comes into it then, doesn't it? You know, and, and yeah. rallying people and, and that well, that wasn't Colin's uh, Colin's gig, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask because, you know, I think again, you both mentioned in, in the first 80s pod about how, you know, Everton managers tend to work on three-year cycles or a three-year lifespan historically. And, and it, you know, did you sense that there was he was under pressure coming into that third season? He, he was under pressure, but equally because of what he'd achieved, you know, so as a footballer and as a coach, he was given a lot more scope and a lot more leeway than maybe other managers, you know, so might have got. And to be honest, you know, so even when, you know, so he was sacked and Howard came back, Everyone was delighted that, you know, so he was immediately re-employed as, you know, so Howard's number two again. Because, yeah, you know, yeah. p- people love the guy, you know, so, you know, he is easily one of, you know, so the most influential figures in Emerson Football Club's history, you know, so as a player and as a manager. Uh, and well, even more so as a coach. Uh, and even then what he went to do in the youth developments, you know, so when, when Rooney was coming through, an mm. absolute, you know, sort of colossal figure in the club's history. So, yeah, he was given, you know, sort of a lot more leeway than other managers might have been. Yeah, it, it's mm. worth adding. It's worth adding. I was going to mention this at the start. Colin and Howard is different in that Howard came to the club where Colin's always been an Everton fan. And yeah. I think his his links to the club were far greater than Howard's. I mean, I, I said at the end of the pod last week that I think Howard didn't be... It's a, I think Howard had to leave Everton to love the club. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. think Howard leaving in '87. I still think there was a little bit of business there, out of the way he's being seized by the fans, uh, and I think that maybe subconsciously went into his went went into his decision. But he had to then look. He had to go away to appreciate the club for what it was. But where Colin's relationship was completely different. He was an Ever- Evertonian. He'd been in the club all his life, you know. And I think it would have hurt him a little bit more. I think maybe mm-hmm. even more than Howard's. The not 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 being successful uh, because of his is is just links his family's links with the club and Everton was still there weren't he and I think he, he'd be really struggling at this stage Colin uh, when it starts to maybe not go right yeah mm. um, so as I said at the start of the pod we would go right up until the end of the decade um, yeah. quick quiz then who knows the answer to this what was the final game of the eighties in the league for Everton and what what was the score. I've got it in front of me, so I'll be choosing if I jumped in. <laughs> <laughs> we played, we played, we played a derby on Boxing Day, didn't we? Uh, and yeah. Stuart of course. So it was a, it was a home game, uh, obviously. Um, last game, I can't, you know what? I cannot, I cannot remember. Would it be? I, 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 misery. It was a little town. It was a it was my 27th birthday, December the 30th, 1989, and we got beat 1-0 at QPR, which sort of like sums it up, really. I, I, can't, I can't remember that game at all. We played Luton Town on the year's day, didn't we? Correct, 1-2-1, that one, yeah. yeah, yeah. Big Norman scored that, that, that day, 
And uh, yeah. that, that was almost like Collins, you know, sort of last hurrah that summer uh, where he decided again that you try and have a bit of a spending spree because that was the summer that Trevor Stephen went, as we've mentioned. I think Paul mm. Bracewell went, uh, Pat Mandanau went. So he brought in, shall we say, a mixed bag of players. I mean, uh, yeah. I, mentioned, I mentioned about Gary Lineker, you know, sort of not being signed. I think that was just someone Mike Newell uh, had signed. Well, yeah. uh, he made a flying start for another And he did. Didn't well, he actually got into an England squad. I think he scored in seven out of eight games or got six six games in a row he scored. And he looked okay. You know, he was pacey, um, you know, decent enough finisher. Good enough to get, you know, named in an England squad. But then it was very, very inconsistent. That was a, very much a false dawn. Uh, Norman Whiteside was a real gamble. You know, it was being, you know, had been an absolutely legendary player for Man United, but he'd been mm. battered by injuries. I think Colin was hoping that maybe like what happened with Peter Reid or Andy Gray could happen yeah. with Norman Whiteside. You know, players that had had bad injuries but come and had this, you know, incredible swan song. But it was okay, Norman Whiteside, but nothing more than that. The one that Colin always says was his best ever signing, which was a strange one. Martin Keown bought Martin Keown last summer and great player. You know, so I was only at Everson for a couple of years, but, you know, so did well but famously didn't mix well with the rest of the squad. <laughs> yes. In one of, one, one of those, uh, those Chinese meals, I always ended up battling Kevin Shuzi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't go down well. <laughs> I, I think a couple, couple of comments there on the, on what you're just saying there. I think, think Mike Newell, like, I think we were top, weren't we? In September, I think Mike Newell's goals have got us top. And uh, yeah. he was, he, I think Mike Newell defines the, uh, the term rangy. <laughs> for the psyche, you know. Uh, but he, he, he never, then he never scored to the last day of the season. I think Norman Whiteside, when you talk about quality players, he, you know, when you talk about football intuition, we talk about that on the the, the, the Rugby podcast. Phil, Norman had that intuition that you you, you don't you, you don't learn as a player, even as a young yeah. lad. He knew, he knew he understood the game and he knew his where players were and on the pitch at any given time. You just had. Had all that, plus he was obviously a very stubborn player. And he scored 13 league goals for us that season and a few goals in the FA Cup. And I think, and Martin Keown is a strange one because you're thinking, Mark, I think they bought him from uh, it was Aston Villa. Villa, yeah. Um, mm, he'd yeah. been be relegated, you know. Yeah. Um, with, with, I think he'd be played for him when he got relegated. And, and, and he, uh, he immediately, though, Keown looked at a, a, a very Good playing, and I think I think by the, even by the early nineties, and I was made discuss at some point in the future. You're thinking he's probably a bit too uh, too good for us. You know, well, was, that, was that the era when Colin was going for three at the back? We had a, we had a spell where we played Keown, Watson, he, and Ratcliffe. All, all yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, in fact, when we played Wimbledon, I think, and Crystal yeah. Palace. Um, yeah. But we, we we started that season. Colin bought himself a bit of time at the eighty nine ninety. We started the season really well, but then. We went to Aston Villa, I think, on bonfire night, top to of the that table. One. That was the Nadir, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like all our like our worst games, captured yeah. live in front of the TV cameras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it finished 6-2, but it was actually 6-0 at one stage. And yeah. It was an absolute humiliation. You know, for a team that had been champions only two and a half years previously, we were absolutely humiliated in front of the live TV cameras. And uh, I think Peter Beagree had not long been signed and he came on and did one of his mad little, you know, sort of jinky dribbles and yeah. you know, drove in across, which Brennan off Paul McGrath. And then I think Cossie might have got one as well. But, you know, it put a, a slight, you know, sort of gloss on the final score, 6-2. But it was, that that was the sign that, you know, so the 
absolute highs that we'd enjoyed only two years previously well and truly gone. You know, so yeah. the, the club really was struggling then. Agree, made worse the fact that I think Tarek Manfield was playing for Villa as well, wasn't it? Those he was right. to, 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 yeah. to 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 uh, Derek. It just yeah. shows that like some of our better players in the days are now playing for other clubs who are now beating us, you know, six 0 up against us. Yeah. So it was it, our home form was good at that time, but the, the away form is uh, the away form is dreadful. And you can just you can just see now that it's all a bit of a hotspot now, isn't it? The, the squad, it's like some people are still there from the mid 80s, some very senior players. Colin bought one group of players in 88 and then bought another group in 89. Then he bought Beagley. If you think about it, he sold Seven Stephen, bought Peter Beagley. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Some but he also, really... he, he tried to like be really, you know, so I don't know, futuristic almost because very, you know, Players were arriving from the continent, but certainly not in the numbers that you know sort of they have you know, now. And uh, he brought in Stefan Wren, uh, yeah, from Sweden, and uh, Ray Atterveld from Holland, and you know quite exciting signings because we didn't know a great deal about either of them. Uh, but again, you know Atterveld was functional at best, and Stefan Wren only lasted about six games, didn't he? Yeah, and, I think uh, I think st- sorry, Pano, yeah. I think, yeah, just, you know, he clearly, clearly wasn't strong enough for the other. Uh, almost like a prototype Davy Klassen. <laughs> was, uh, yeah, he was. You know what? I've good. never thought of it that way, but you're spot on. Exactly. <laughs> that, uh, probably a decent player on the continent, but as soon as yeah. he came to English football, could come. I mean, he did that, the rarest of these, didn't he? That were like substituted, 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 wasn't he? He was in the Derby, Goodison. That's right, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was, uh, he was just, he was a Davy Klassen of his time. Stefan then, but maybe even worse if that were possible. <laughs> no, actually, I'll ch- ch- change my mind there. No, it's impossible to be worse than that. But uh, yeah, a, war- we, a warning, a warning from history. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, um, but yeah, we was it was, and as you say, by eighty nine ninety, the culture of English football was changing. You know, d- you know, there was more competition for Colin. I think we should always stress that. Liverpool won the title that year, but I think if you have a look, you know, you can see Leeds come back up that that season. Arsenal were in the middle of a good run. United were obviously going to win the FA Cup that season under Ferguson. So the landscape of English football was changing as well. Um, so it was far more competitive at that far end of the uh, the table where they'd only just be you just had to beat Liverpool. Okay, excellent traps. I'm, I'm, we, we could, uh, I'm sure you two could. Uh, <laughs> about this period for, for, for a long time but we have to we'll have to end it there um, thank you very much it's been hugely enjoyable just to uh, to listen to this and, and, and guide the conversation but you didn't need much of my input because uh, <laughs> excellent insight and colour and anecdotes from, from a period of, of, of evidence history that's perhaps overlooked and with good reason of course <laughs> um, given that it's uh, it straddled a fabulous time for the football club, but I'm hoping that you guys who've been listening to these pods have, have really enjoyed it. It was something different, something we thought that would would generate some interest and and and, and uh, would bring stories and, and colour out that perhaps don't get much of an airing. Um, so hopefully you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Um, Gav, Pranel, thank you very much for your company across these two pods, and uh, and I think you know, it would naturally, if people have uh, got an appetite for, I think it would naturally lead on to. Uh, a couple of uh, 1990s pods as well, because I'm sure you both, both have got some uh, some oh, tales yeah. to tell from, yeah. from that period. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.